the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. It is a delight to welcome back to the show the one and only Professor Victor Davis Hansen. He's a uh, senior fellow at the Center for American Greatness and, of course, uh, at the Hoover Institution as well, has a hugely important piece at American uh, Greatness uh, today, out just today, entitled The New Anti-Racism is the Old Racism. Professor Hansen, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix, and thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. You betcha, of course. Um, there's a lot in this essay, and it's fabulous, and uh, perhaps historians can redound to it or go back to it years hence in trying to understand the moment we're in. But let's start with where you start when you write, Until ju- the, my audience has been all over this point lately. Until just a few years ago, racial differences, according to polls, were more or less receding, you write. Today, racism is everywhere, or at least racialization and race talk. But you're quite right. My, my listeners have been pointing us out. They said these kinds of conversations and this kind of disruption to our to our lives, this kind of this kind of sensitivity, if you will, using all the meanings of it, wasn't around 15 years ago. And you cite some polling, and the polling bears it out. Uh, in 1958, here's an interesting stat for you, Professor. 1958, 40%, 48% of almost 50% of white Americans said if a black person moved next door, they would consider moving. That was 1958, 50%, 50%. Today it's 1%. We can do this with people who say they have black friends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We, we, we were getting all this right, and now everything seems wrong. What happened here? Well, I think the, the key was the Obama administration. And remember that Barack Obama got more white voters in 2008 than did John Kerry. Right. And so we were told that we were going to be a post-racial society, even though there were disturbing things about the references he made to his own grandmother, his associations with John Marshall Davis, uh, take a gun to a knife fight, all that stuff, get in their faces, his earlier racialized career. But what he did over that period, whether it was the Trayvon Martin or the Ferguson, they did something very, I thought, I wrote about it at the time, very dangerous. They took the old Jesse Jackson idea of a rainbow coalition that really had gone nowhere, and they redefined it as diversity. And so rather than the old black-white binary that people had been at the center of the civil rights, they said, basically, if you are not white, no matter what your income, no matter what your class, no matter what your history, you have an affinity. If you're a Southeast Asian and you were a, a refugee that came here after the Vietnam War, if you're a South American aristocrat, if you're a Basque, all these people had not been eligible strictly for affirmative action, but suddenly 
they were called the non-white. Mm-hmm. And we were to think that a fourth-generation Japanese-American surgeon had a lot in common with somebody who just came from Vietnam, or we were told that uh, people from Spain, any, and I was, you know, I'm in an academic institution, you could see it, that basically it was based on a racial concept that we are not white, and we are now 30% of the population and gaining, and we have a grievance against this culture, the majority white culture, based on what their ancestors did to our ancestors. And they had this idea of disproportionate, uh, disparate impact and disproportionality, where they said, even if there is no uh, racial bias that we can detect, uh, there is still going to have to be repertory uh, redress of grievances because the percentages are not there that reflect actual new demographics. Of course, it didn't apply to the post office or professional sports or other things, entertainment. But that was the, really the beginning of it. And then all of a sudden I noticed that people who had been kind of conservative or had former students, they were Punjabi, they were Brazilian, they were Korean-American. All of a sudden it was like, Wow, we're not white now. We're, we're, we're owed something, and it was it was absurd. And then Trump, I think the hatred of Trump, they they fed that in, and then we kind of had to lock down the pandemic, and that was a laboratory of madness. And here we are. But the central premise that we were going to allow a lot of wealthy people, and a lot of these people are very wealthy, whether Oprah or the Obamas or LeBron or whomever, and then we're not going to have any class considerations, and then we're going to have people from India and people from Europe who have faced no uh, victimization in their lives, and then we're going to allow somebody from Oaxaca to be horribly oppressed in Mexico because of the racism there against indigenous people, but the moment he sets foot into the U.S. across the border, suddenly he has grievances against this very generous host because he's not white, and he had no record of discrimination. And it was absurd, and yet that's where we are. And then everything else is explicable from that, the 1619, to, to feed that lie, we have to have the Duke Lacrosse. We have to have mm-hmm. the Jesse Smollett. We've got to have the Covington Kids. We have the 1619. We have to have the, uh, the Trayvon Martin. So all of a sudden, George Zimmerman is not Jorge Mesa, half white Hispanic, as you're called. He's a white Germanic racist. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we are now. Everything fits that narrative, that 30% of the country is going to inherit this flawed project, and, that, and they have all of these affinities which they don't have. Uh, I, I'm speaking to someone who's a 95% Hispanic or Mexican-American or illegal community. I can tell you they're not, they don't have closer affinities with any one of these groups than they do with white people. They either are no more friendly or more less friendly. It's not a... There's no solidarity is what I'm saying, and yet that's what we're told exists, and that's how government policy is made. And the other thing that's very quickly, the other thing that's new is there was never an overt hatred before. But when you see Washington saying that black groups that are giving vaccinations will not vaccinate whites, or the Farm Bill will not give aid to white people, or a George Floyd monument has special instructions for white people, or you can pick the color of your dorm roommate, this is new. This, this, or you have people like this, uh, Ellie Novell, or all these people saying that they don't want to be around white people. 
or Damon, I think his name is Damon Young in the room, yeah. said that white people are responsible mm-hmm. for all these evils. That, that's new. That started during the Obama administration, and especially with Tahitian Coates, when he was idolized for being explicitly anti-white. It's not going to end well, because there's no society in the world, whether the Balkans or Rwanda or Iraq, that's ever ended well with a tribal mentality like we're developing we're talking with Professor Victor Davis Hanson, Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Victor, it seems to me three things have been unlearned by us, uh, society, culture, America. And I'd like to run them through. And I think you cover two out of the three anyway in your piece, maybe all three. But one of the things that seems to me that's been unlearned, um, let's start with the last one, which you just talked about, the issue of integration. Whenever I see a story about blacks only can get vaccinations, whites have to go to a waiting list. I saw a version of this. You probably saw it, too. It was a uh, school district in Washington state last week that had parent teacher conference call lines, one line for white parents, one line for black parents. And it makes me want to say now do water fountains. It makes me want to say that this notion of integration, we have become disintegrated over race when. Every effort we had, wasn't it, from law and culture and society, was that integration from Brown versus Board or Martin Luther King was the way out of this. We're resegregating, aren't we? We are. And I think another thing that people don't talk about is who are the people doing this? Mm-hmm. Who, who are the Nation magazine? Who's NPR? Who is PBF? Who is Stanford University? Who was the Obama coterie? Who were the people that were working for Obama? These are elites, whether you define that by income or capital or influence or education or credentials, but they're elites. And one thing about them you notice is all these African-American vocal spokesmen that write, they they have no contact whatsoever with the white, Mm -hmm. lower, and middle classes. They have no idea that more people in absolute numbers are poor mm-hmm. who are white That's right. than black, That's are right. all minorities put together, in fact. They're the largest poor group. Out here in the Oklahoma diaspora still exists out here in Tulare and Kings County. And so when I grow up, grow up and I see people working, welding, and truck drivers, these are not privileged people because of their color. But we have privileged African-American and other minorities who are damning these people. And by the same token, they hang out with, or they associate wealthy white privilege, of course. elite, of the course. old boy network. Who, of course, you know what? If you're going to be yeah, if Leonard Bernstein's apartment, in, <laughs> Leonard exactly. Bernstein's these, apartment, and, right? <laughs> and these people never hang out That's right. with minorities of the lower That's middle right. classes. So if I say to one of my friends at Stanford, I found a dead body in my orchard, or I got confronted by a person who didn't speak English with an AR-15 two weeks ago, that, that's, beyond, that's beyond their, their comprehension. That's right. That's so right. We have the, the, the elite blacks who don't know anything about the lower-class whites and think they have privilege and get away with this lies. And so basically it's two elite group of people talking to each other, each in their own way without any experience of working-class America and what privilege is. And then there's sort of a medieval guilt Wealthy black elites like LeBron with the security detail and his $40 million uh, compound have to constantly show that they are authentic. They have street cred by this exaggerated racist attack on white people and the police. And by the same token, 
a Barbara Streisand or any other Brad Pitt or any of these people who have all of this privilege. They fly on jets. They're, they're segregated. They have to, I guess, square their, their guilt in medieval fashion by buying penance. And their penance or indulgences that they purchase are being very vocal about how bad white people are. Just have a minute or so left with Professor Victor Davis Hanson. We're delighted to have him. His piece, The New Anti-Racism is the Old Racism. And, Professor, I know you need to go. I'll let you go whenever you need to. But I wanted to throw one more question at you on your piece, if I could. Because it seems to me something else that's been a retread of history here or a backtracking on history here in uh, in the woke movement and in this racial this new racial moment we're in is the left seems to have adopted the lost cause of the Civil War, if you will. That is to say, everything they say about our founding could be found in Confederate speeches, Confederate statements, Roger B. Taney's opinion in Dred Scott, uh, the, the writings of Alexander Stevens. They believed that the founding was meant to perpetuate slavery. There was another side in this country, more people, more states, and it actually won, that said no. It's weird to me that the left wants to re- 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 reignite and reinvigorate Roger Pitani. Do you notice that trend as well? I, I do, and it even has another wrinkle where you, you mentioned Alexander Stevens and that famous letter he wrote at the founding of the Confederacy where he attacked the Constitution and Lincoln. He said, the problem with you, meaning you white people in the North, is that you're following a flawed document, the Constitution. Mm-hmm. The founders had everything right, mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing them, but they didn't get put in white supremacy. Right. And so your whole country is based on the idea that people are equal when we in the South know that they're not, and so we're putting people in their rightful slot. But you have confused nature because of this flawed idea that we're all equal. Yeah. And it's, it's prima facie evidence from a racist that he's angry at the United States because it was not founded in racism. Yeah. And yet they, they, but they have a very strange relationship with the South mm-hmm. uh, in the Confederate sense because they do believe in segregation now, mm-hmm. and they'd like to segregate. They don't believe in the open housing law. If you're at Stanford or Claremont, you can pick the race of your roommate in a way that would be abhorrent. Are you kidding me? Anybody in the night? No, no you can say, no I want to be, I am Punjabi, I want a Punjabi. No kidding. Except if you're white. No. You'd be kicked out if you did that if you're white. Claremont is the best example of that, but it's everywhere now. There are theme houses. We just use the word theme for segregated houses. And and so the same idea, we have safe spaces on campuses where you cannot go if you're not a particular race. And then the whole sanctuary city movement is based on the Confederate idea that the federal government does not have any right to tell a state what jurisdiction and what federal laws that it has to comply to. So I'm living in a county where the county says, and the state at large, but the county says, you know what, the federal government's rules on immigration do not apply within Fresno County as they pertain to immigration. So if we pick up an illegal alien, he's got a felony accusation, and when he's released for custody or bail, we're not going to allow the federal government to be take him away and deport him, be as if somebody in Utah, and, and this is going to happen, of course, or Virginia said, you know what, the Endangered Species Act or the federal gun rule or things about gay marriage or abortion, they don't apply in our county. 
because we trumped federal law. But mm-hmm. They're very infatuated. When I was growing up, states' rights was a dirty word. That's and right. And I said, you know what? George Wallace is a states' writer. He's a disobeying federal law yep. that says he can't do that. He yep. has to integrate the University of Alabama. Yep. Now they're on the side of George you bet. Wallace ideologically. You bet. As an undergrad at Claremont, I had two roommates. One was black and one was Asian. I bet I couldn't have them now. I bet I couldn't. No, I don't think so. At least if they didn't want it. Yeah. And they could say they didn't uh-huh. want They didn't want uh-huh. Victor Davis Hanson, I know you have to run. You've been more than generous. God bless you, sir. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you, sir, Bye. for everything. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Why would a high-ranking American diplomat alert an Iranian government official about Israeli covert actions? In a leaked recording between Mohammad Javad Zarif and a political ally, the foreign minister revealed that John Kerry personally informed him that Israel was behind over 200 attacks on its military forces and proxies in Syria. Zarif professed astonishment at Kerry's tip-off. No doubt the Israelis are astonished at this as well, and all Americans should feel the same way. After years of unfounded accusations about Republican collusion with Russia, we now hear of a prominent member of two Democratic administrations sharing intelligence about our allies' covert operations with a regime that regularly holds Death to America rallies in its capital. Not only does this torpedo a close ally in an existential fight against Iran, it also looks like a tacit approval of Iran's infiltration in Syria. The Biden administration needs to explain Kerry's actions immediately, especially while pursuing pointless negotiations with the puppet government in Tehran. I'm Ed Morrissey. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.